Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast about Scottish history, nature and folklore. I'm Jenny and I have a thin atmosphere. And I'm Annie and I have moons orbiting me. This week we're zooming out a little and then a little bit more because we're talking about Scotland in space. One of the most awe-inspiring sights in all the world is the night sky and you don't have to be a rocket scientist to appreciate it. For millennia, we humans have been using astronomy, the study of everything beyond the Earth's atmosphere, to track the passing of seasons and our movement through space. The stars have been guiding folk through the phases of life for as long as we've been looking up. A good example of this comes from oral histories of Shetland. These explain that some folk were able to tell the time by simply looking at the stars. If you didn't have a watch, then it didn't matter, as you knew that at the start of November, the Pleiades, also known as the Seven Sisters, would rise at six in the evening and set at six in the morning. And of course, before GPS, sailors would navigate the vast ocean by the positions of the Sun and the North Star. Knowing your sky map was a pretty crucial skill if you wanted to survive out on the water. Scotland has also had an astronomically big impact on our understanding of space, of the planets, and what they're made of. In exploring this history, we see the scientific side of Scotland shine. It's the shimmering silver lining to our long winter nights. When researching this episode, I began to think about stars and stones, and about how ancient peoples of Scotland would line up standing stones or cairns to celestial events. This got me onto a wee tangent about how knowledge of the stars has been such a valued resource by so many cultures, and that this significance is often communicated in stone. Ancient Babylonians created stunning, intricate diaries of the stars written in stone, and ancient Egyptians carved star maps into ceilings. Essentially, no matter which country or continent you're from, we are all descended from stargazers. I want to jump in on some big figures on space in Scotland. Let's begin with a shout out to the two Jameses and then meet another James later on in the episode. We'll begin with astronomer James Gregory and telescope maker James Short. James Gregory was born in 1638 in Aberdeenshire, the youngest of three children. His father was a minister and his mother, Janet, homeschooled wee James, as her uncle was a mathematician. Janet was a wonderful teacher, and James eventually went on to get a formal education in Aberdeen, where he studied optics and telescope construction, before travelling through Europe. 
On his travels, he gets involved with some key figures of the scientific revolution, like gravity's bestie, Isaac Newton. However, he wasn't just a brilliant mind, he was also an inventor. And one of his main achievements was the design for a reflecting telescope. Reflecting telescopes use either single or multiple curved mirrors to reflect light and form an image. Before this, telescopes were refracting, which means that they used a lens to form the image. However, 17th century refracting telescopes tended to distort light and make the image more blurry, which isn't great when you're trying to look at stars that are hundreds of millions of miles away. I can suddenly see why his life is going to intertwine with that of a telescope maker. However, I'm still a bit uncertain on the difference between refractive and reflective. Ah, yeah, okay. So do you know the famous Pink Floyd album cover? No. All right, no, that's impossible. You definitely do. Have you um, ever seen something glass or shiny on the windowsill make a rainbow pattern? Yes, and it looks just like that Pink Floyd album cover. Yes, you do know it. I knew you would. It is (laughs) iconic. (laughs) Well, that rainbow is caused by the light being refracted. Essentially, in passing through the glass, the light waves are slowed down and their direction is changed and bent. The different wavelengths of visible light each refract at slightly different angles, and so we get the whole spectrum of light being refracted on our windowsill. The amount of bending that occurs depends on the thickness and the shape of the glass. Lenses are specifically shaped to control the bending of light as much as possible. So if you're looking to the sky through a telescope, the lens at the end is collecting all the light from the visible sky and channeling it down into a focal point where you can see that area of sky magnified. But back in the day, at this high level of magnification, the lenses they were using always had some sort of level of distortion, which resulted in the image, or the light that they were refracting, being slightly out of focus. But in his design, James used mirrors to redirect and refocus the light rather than lenses. He utilised reflection rather than refraction to cleanly magnify the image of stars. I feel like that's going to be really useful for me in a pub quiz one day, Jenny. (laughs) (laughs) Good old physics. The telescope is a beautiful instrument, though ironically, it's very difficult to get a clear view of its history. I always imagined the telescope being quite an ancient implement, because when we look at old civilizations, we can see that they spent so much time looking up at the sky. However, the earliest telescopes we have are just from the 1600s, starting in the Netherlands. Those are the refractive ones that you mentioned early on. Now, these telescopes were designed thanks to the study of optics done by Islamic scientists in the medieval period. So, we can see throughout human history, people have been wanting to build this telescope. (laughs) And then, it comes to a climax in the 1600s, when we get not only the refractive one, but then later on, we get legends like James Gregory. Yes, and although people had been building them or wanting to build them for a long time, it's only in the 1600s that developments in the telescope community really started to magnify. And suddenly, they were an essential object for every rich person. Unfortunately, though, for James Gregory, despite designing a better telescope around this time, He couldn't find people with the right skills to actually have it made. And so, his old pal Isaac Newton pipped him to the post with a more streamlined telescope design before James Gregory's could actually be made. Some believe Isaac Newton read Gregory's book, made some tweaks, and then stole the reflective telescope trophy. Ouch. Because everyone knows Isaac Newton, no one knows James Gregory, unless you're a telescope enthusiast. However, at the University of St Andrews, they remember James Gregory, as they named their 1962 Schmidt-Cassegrain telescope after him, which is the largest working optical telescope in the UK. Wait a minute, so did they use his design for their telescope? Um... 
No, they didn't. By this time, Gregory's design is well out of date. They used the Schmidt Cassegrain design, but they honoured James in its name. But it is a reflective telescope and so can trace its roots all the way back to James Gregory. While the university has moved on in telescope design, our second James, James Short, did utilise Gregory's design to a great extent. James Short was born in Edinburgh in 1710, but he was orphaned by just age 10, and so he grew up in an orphanage. Here he sought solace in knowledge, which he excelled at, and he went on to study astronomy at the University of Edinburgh, where one of his professors recognised his talent and gave him the space and support to run experiments on constructing all different types of telescopes. It's like Oliver Twist, except instead of being taken in by a gang of thieves, it's a group of academic astronomers. You've got to build a scope or two, boys, build a telescope or two. (laughs) Why, Jenny, I can see you're going to be on the West End soon. Please, sir, can I have some more reflective mirrors? Mirrors? You want mirrors? You'll have lenses and nothing more, boy. Never before has a boy wanted more mirrors. (laughs) (laughs) Despite his humble beginnings, James Short did indeed build telescopes following Gregory's plans. And many of them. James Short spent the next 35 years constructing telescopes, selling them across the world and becoming tremendously wealthy from doing so. However, throughout his life and his practice, he never took an assistant. And so when he died, all his self-taught telescope knowledge died with him. But his revolutions and refinements in the telescope forged the path for some incredible steps forward in astronomy. If we move to the 1800s, we see major developments in maths, geology and physics that can all suddenly be applied to the night skies. Yes, the 19th century was an intriguing time for space gazing because astronomers suddenly wanted to do more than simply catalogue what they saw in the sky. They wanted to figure out what all of the things they were seeing in the sky were made of and what their movements meant. And this is really exciting because it's about unravelling the whole mystery of the universe. One of my favourites of this new gang of astronomers is Mary Somerville. She was born in Jedburgh in the Borders in 1780, so she is born into the era of terrific telescopes. But her early life doesn't coincide with them. Because although her family is very well connected, they're not particularly wealthy, and so Mary's mother supplements her father's naval salary by growing fruit, vegetables and keeping cows. If there's anything that signifies good fortune to come on Stories of Scotland, it's the presence of a happy cow. Oh, and believe me, Annie, this cow was very happy. Mary was raised in Fife, where her mother taught her to read. And eventually, her mother convinced her father that if Mary could go to school for just a year then it would enable her to learn to write. And this meant that Mary would be able to keep accounts, which would be very useful if Mary ever wanted to get her own happy cow. But the fates looked down upon Mary's potential milky way and laughed. School ignited a love of learning in her that she would hold on to for her entire life. When Mary returned home, she began collecting shells from the beach and categorising them all for their different shapes. Then, she began noticing that the limestone being brought in from the pier contained fossils, and so she started collecting these fragments too. And this was the way that she built and grew her fascination with the universe. By seeing these small patterns in the natural world and longing to understand them further, Mary read her way through her father's library. However, this greatly upset one of her elderly aunts, who, upon visiting their home, was appalled to witness that Mary was reading more than she was sewing. Her aunt exclaimed that Mary was wasting so much time reading that she sews as much as a man would. How appalling. That's a ye olde burn. 
<laughs> but Mary took no heed. She was such a keen reader that she taught herself Latin so that she could complete reading her father's entire book collection. Unfortunately for Mary, though, all her efforts to learn the secrets of the world seemed to be met with well-meaning family members insisting she learned how to curtsy properly instead. This meant that she was forced to do all of the traditionally feminine pursuits for a lady at the time, before being able to do all the stuff that actually interested her. Her parents employed a proper Latin and Greek tutor for her little brother, and not her, but Mary convinced the tutor to source her some algebra books anyway. Imagine the forbidden temptation in your life being an algebra book. She spent her days playing piano and painting, and her nights reading about mathematics and astronomy. At age 24, she met her first husband, who she described as being prejudiced against learned women, and he didn't support her academic pursuits in any way. He was also her distant cousin, which kind of goes to show that no matter how smart you are, if everyone else in Georgian Britain is marrying their cousin, then you're likely to fall into that trap too. If only these algebra books had a little bit more information on genetics. <laughs> Though, I mean, it's different times. If Bridgerton were to be a realistic portrayal of this time period, then they would all just be one big family. Well, Mary's husband died after only three years, which left her a small inheritance. With this, she could finally get stuck into her real love of reading, and she bought a great collection of scientific books. Hooray for dead husbands! <laughs> Eventually, Mary married a different cousin. Nay, for marrying cousins. <laughs> but this time, she chose one that supported her general ability to think. Her major breakthrough in the scientific community came when she published a book called Mechanisms of the Heavens, which is a great title. And this book examined the mathematics of the solar system. It was a translation of the French mathematician Pierre-Simon Laplace's equations into common language. I haven't studied any maths or science since I was 16, but I thought I would give Mechanism of the Heavens a skim just out of curiosity and also because I do love the title. And I was really shocked that it is actually understandable, which is a testament to how accessible her work was, which was something that academics at the time were simply not doing. If they could understand these very profound equations, they didn't feel the need to simplify that into language that someone like me could understand. She was a real talented pioneer in this field, and she was also an early scientist to recognise discrepancies in Uranus. Pardon me? Well, in 1842... She predicted that there was something big out there, past Uranus. And she was right, because in 1846, Neptune was discovered. Since all the planets have Roman names, I often forget that Romans only had five planets, the ones that can be seen with the naked eye. It wasn't until 1610, when Galileo got his telescope out, that he finally saw that there were more planets in our wee solar system. However, it keeps me awake at night imagining that planets named after 1600 could have actually been called anything. They didn't need to stick to the Roman god pattern. But I'm very glad that they did. Ah yes, and our latest discovery, just past Uranus, is your ball Jenny! <laughs> I've just realised that the Earth doesn't follow the same naming convention as the rest of the planets, and this has displeased me greatly. I'm going to lose sleep over this, Jenny. Well, I'm surprised you get any sleep at all, Annie. <laughs> <laughs> One of the potential origins for the word scientist is thought to be when a man of science read Mary Somerville's book and thought, wow, she's... A professional, but she doesn't fit the title of man of science. So they had to come up with a gender-neutral term to include her and settled on scientist. 
which is just incredible if it's true. As well as this, her work was incredibly interdisciplinary, looking at not just one branch of the sciences, but rather the whole science tree. She was a true polymath. Her further works look at geography in all its glory, as well as microscopic discoveries. Somerville wrote about the whole spectrum of science, from the vastness of space down to the atoms themselves. And what's truly great about her is that she wrote in a way that people can understand, and so she helped democratise science. In 1868, in her late 80s, Mary Somerville was the first signatory on a petition for women's suffrage for the political rights of women to vote. She sounds awesome. To be honest, though, I am a little bit disappointed that it wasn't a Scot who discovered Neptune instead of predicting it. And that's because not only was Mary Somerville working in this area, but also Scottish-German astronomer Johann von Lamont worked on calculations for Uranus's mass and the orbits for the moons of Uranus and Saturn. During this work, he spotted Neptune in both 1845 and 1846, but he didn't recognise it as a new planet. Oh, Johan. Johan, <laughs> it's right there in the sky. It's right there. As he said, Neptune was finally discovered that same year in 1846 by a French astronomer. Oh, surely you think with all our telescopes, Scots could have found just one of the planets in the solar system. We got so close! Well, although Scotland can't take that trophy, Scotland does get the commendation rosette for the rings of Saturn. I will take it, I guess. (laughs) Enter our third James, James Clerk Maxwell, a Victorian physicist from Edinburgh who became very well known for his work on electromagnetic fields. In his 20s, he became interested in an enigma of science at the time, that is, the mystery of Saturn's rings. How could they remain stable without breaking up and drifting away? Why weren't they drawn in by gravity to crash on Saturn itself? It's one of those things that I think we take for granted nowadays, but when Saturn is looked at through a telescope, the rings are kind of hard to make out what they could be comprised of. They look like a solid disc, like a vinyl record. Ah yes, Saturn, the DJ of the sky. Although unfortunately, in space, no one can hear you spin. Anyway, James considered whether it could be a solid ring, like a life ring or a donut that Saturn was wearing. However, in following this line of thought, he proved that it couldn't be a solid mass, because if it had been, it would be torn apart by Saturn's gravity. Likewise, if it was liquid, it wouldn't sit in the same pattern, but rather it would start forming blobs instead of its aesthetically pleasing disc. And so, James realised that the rings must be composed of many small particles, each independently orbiting Saturn. There was simply no other solution. For his work in understanding the nature of the solar system, he received a prize of £130, which is pretty great. That is pretty nice, because with inflation, that's about £12,000. So, not bad, James Clerk Maxwell. Not bad. His work wasn't proven until the 20th century, when NASA's Voyager flyby enabled humans to get a decent picture of the rings, and indeed see that they're made up of lots of debris. However, James's calculations were slightly flawed, because... Though the rings of Saturn are definitely made of many, many particles, these aren't stable. They're constantly being pulled into Saturn's gravity. So, Saturn's rings have only about 300 million years left, which is a blink of an eye from the perspective of a planet. Quickly, 
Get your telescopes out now to admire them before they're gone. <laughs> because after those 300 million years, Annie, a small hobbit named Frodo has to take Saturn's ring to Mount Doom on Mars. <laughs> Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Scottish scientists made big waves in the world of space. But many of those who spent their days out on the waves also looked up to space and observed the stars. Fishermen and sailors have been using the night sky to navigate for millennia. And while they may not have the world of science behind them, they know the map of the stars and their celestial movements without the help of books. It's a difficult one because though they weren't scientific in the way that we would think of it, I think their approach to understanding the night sky and passing on that knowledge definitely crosses over into the world of science. And it's just done outside of an academic setting. But they didn't only use the stars for navigation. In 1889, a fellow named H.N. Dixon was working for the Scottish Meteorological Council. And it was his job to travel around the country inspecting the Scottish Coast Barometer Stations. Barometers are a scientific instrument that are used to measure air pressure. Air pressure is basically just the weight of the air at a location on the Earth's surface. And although we humans can't really feel changes in air pressure other than wind, they can be measured using a barometer. When we know what the air pressure is and how it's changing over time, we can make fairly accurate short-term weather predictions. As you can imagine, this instrument was very useful for fishermen who every day set sail in the hopes that the weather would not turn nasty. At this time, barometers weren't a new technology. They'd already been around since the 17th century. However, part of Dixon's job was to speak with the local fishermen and give them instruction in the law of storms and in the use of the barometer, so that they may make more accurate predictions about the coming days ahead, and thus ensure that they were as safe as possible whilst out on the waves. Dixon found that when he was having these meetings, the fisherfolk themselves already had many ways of predicting the weather, and they would happily share the knowledge. They had much lore that used current weather patterns to predict future weather patterns, such as Sun sets in the clear, easterly winds are near. Sun sets in a bank, westerlies will not lack. And also lore which used the current human condition to predict future weather patterns. My corns they shoot with burning pain, a certain sign that we are to have rain. Wait, so if you have sore feet, we're going to have bad weather, Jenny. Yeah, but it's the same as people saying like, oh, my bad knee is aching, you know, and you can tell when the weather's turning damp or whatever because our bodies react a certain way. But if your corns are aching, better be taking that umbrella with you. How are your corns today, Jenny? Zero corns yet, but I do hope I develop some so I can, you know, know the weather when I'm older. But the fisher folk all over Scotland also used the stars to make prognosis about what weather was to come. For example, they would keep an eye out for pocket stars. Pocket is a Scots word and it means to pluck. So pocket stars is when the stars would suddenly disappear right before sunrise 
as though they have been plucked from the sky. Or popped in your pocket. <laughs> when this happened, it was thought to be a sign that bad weather was to come. It was also believed that if the stars were excessively twinkly, then this was a sign that rain would soon follow. Dixon thinks that this effect may be due to the air in front of an approaching storm having increased humidity. This means that there is more water vapour in the air and thus more particles for the starlight to refract through on its way to the fisherman's eye, making them appear to be twinkling more than usual. In Shetland, there was a similar belief about six stars, which was when the stars had a watery appearance to them, like runny porridge. When this was observed, it was seen as a sign that rain was on the way. They also thought that the direction that a shooting star had arrived from would indicate where the next storm would also come from. But, unfortunately, Dixon doesn't give us a scientific explanation for this lore. <laughs> On his travels around the coast, he also found a common belief was that gales were expected if stars were too close to the moon, especially Venus. If Venus was creeping up on the moon, then you had best believe that big winds were right on their way. <laughs> but the stars were not the only extraterrestrial messengers of future weather events. Dixon found that folk also used the Aurora Borealis as a predictive tool. However, different communities in different locations all had different beliefs in their meaning. In general, he found that folk thought that if the display was in the northern sky, then the merry dancers foretold good weather. However, if the colourful streamers extended past the zenith into the southern sky, then strong gales would soon follow. At Campbelltown, if the aurora danced from north to northwest through the sky, then a storm was expected. And in Aberdeen, if they saw the northern lights at all, then they also thought a storm was on its way. In Shetland, they thought that wherever the aurora went down, the wind would be coming from that direction. And finally, also in Shetland, they believed a heavy gale was expected when a display of the aurora was accompanied by a sound like a shaking blanket. Which, I don't really know what that one means. I don't know if sounds can accompany the northern lights, so if we have any listeners in the far north who regularly see them, let us know. Have you ever heard a sound like shaking blankets accompanying the merry dancers? And if so, did strong winds follow? <laughs> For me, the sound of a shaking blanket is that feeling when the wind is picking up. Okay. And the blanket of plants on the ground starts to move, you know? And it's it's not quite a rustle. If you get it in winter, you don't have all the leaves to make it sound, you know, like a fun frolic in the woods. It's something more primal than that. The shaking blanket of the land. Right, right, right. Do you know that, Jenny? Do you know that? I honestly imagine it more like someone just like shaking a blanket real hard. <laughs> <laughs> like laundry in the wind. Exactly. <laughs> Do you think that's what it means? If there's laundry on the line and it's shaking, then there's going to be wind. Because that's pretty accurate. Yeah, I mean, you can't go wrong when there's already wind and you're saying there's going to be more wind. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, though, Dixon was very impressed with the fisherfolk's understanding of the atmosphere and weather conditions. And a lot of the lore was correct and did have scientific explanations. But the fisherfolk didn't need science to predict future weather conditions. They had hundreds of years of experience-based knowledge passed down through generations of people who had lived by and worked on the sea and under the stars. Well, Annie, you know what they say. When the wind begins to cry, anchoring cables, you stand by. Very wise words, Jenny. Humans have always looked to the sky for inspiration, so it's only natural that folklore has sprung up amongst the stars. There are many stories about the merry dancers. My favourite is that of the Kayach the old lady hag deity who had three children. The blue men of the minch in the water, the fairies on the land, and the merry dancers in the sky. If you'd like to hear more about the merry dancers, 
we've got a cool episode on them in our back catalogue. But for this one, we have found some other folklore about the celestial world. This is the story of a fellow named Kenneth McQueen, who lived in North Eust during the 17th century, and he tried to use the stars to outsmart his enemies. He was a wily, clever man, and over his life he had accumulated a good deal of wealth. However, he had done many people wrong over the years. And along with his wealth, he had accumulated a great number of enemies. This led him to be very paranoid in his old age, and he had suspicions about everyone and everything. On his deathbed, he pulled his daughter close and he told her that he had hidden his treasure at the base of a hill to protect it from his enemies, and that she would find it when the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters, were right above a different hill, at a time when the moon was also at a certain angle above that same hill. He added a further clue to this already quite confusing instruction, that at that moment, just before his death, his two white horses had their forelegs tied together and were within 13 steps of the spot where the treasure was to be found. Now, unfortunately, his daughter wasn't big on astronomy, and also the clue about the horses just confused her even more, and seemingly all who have come since, because this treasure was never discovered. Ooh, let's get our shovels and our telescopes and go searching. <laughs> I think Kenneth was trying to tell his daughter a couple of things. He was trying to explain that she would have to wait a wee while until his enemies had forgotten about him and his wrongdoings because that would make it much safer for her to retrieve the treasure as marked by the celestial calendar. And then he was also trying to tell her the location of the treasure as marked by the tied up horses. But really, he ended up telling her neither of those things because she didn't get his treasure. I mean, I guess he was trying to give her some clues, but if we are to go looking, I suppose we will have some real trouble finding the treasure, seeing as the horses are long gone and the location of them when they were tied up is lost to time. But still, next time I'm in North Uist, I'm bringing my metal detector just in case. See, when someone says to me, two white horses with their legs tied up, I automatically think of a constellation, don't you? I thought he was like, oh, it's the night I'm going to die. I better go and tie up my horse legs next to my treasure. (laughs) And then go and tell my daughter and then die and hope that the horses don't shuggle further than 13 steps away from where I've buried my treasure. (laughs) To be fair, really weird plan, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. I have a rather curious story about shooting stars that comes from the mid-1600s. A shipmaster was moored on the waters around Cromarty, on the far tip of the Black Isle. His fellow seamen had gone ashore for a few days, and he was manning the ship alone. He didn't mind this at all. In fact, he relished the peace and quiet. The evening was calm, the waters were still and the shipmaster was happily sitting up on deck, enjoying the serenity of it all. As the night darkened, he listened to the distant lowing of cows as they settled in their fields, and watched as the windows of each little cottage lit up. As the night wore on, the sounds died down and the cottage lights all blinked out one by one, until only a single cottage, about two miles from Cromarty, remained twinkling with light. Eventually, though, this lone cottage's light went out too, and the bay was enveloped in a darkness as soft as black velvet. Suddenly, the shipmaster heard a loud hissing noise overhead, and looking up, was astonished to see a bright meteor sailing through the sky. The falling star soared through the darkness in the direction of the wee cottage whose lights had just gone out. It grew in size and brilliancy as it came ever closer to earth, until the woodlands on the shore's edge were all illuminated as bright as day. A dog yowled and an owl whooped at the sight. The meteor descended until it was all but on top of that little cottage whose light had gone out last. 
but just before it touched the roof, a cock crowed from within the building. To the shipmaster's further astonishment, the dazzling meteor rose straight up to the height of his ship's mast, before starting to descend once more, further threatening the cottage's roof. But the cock crowed a second time, and for a second time the meteor rose, this time higher than before. But lo, soon enough, it began to descend towards the cottage for a third time. Here, the shipmaster heard the faint clapping of wings and an almighty crow of defiance from the cock. With this, the meteor rose and did not stop rising until it had retaken its place amongst the stars and it did not return to the cottage again. The next night, however, the shipmaster watched in awe as the whole scene played out for a second time, just as before. The meteor came soaring towards the cottage, the dog barked, the owl whooped, the cock crowed three times and the dazzling meteor rose back to the heavens once more. Now, at this point, the shipmaster was sure he was not seeing things and was desperately curious to know what was happening. And so, on the third day, he went ashore and made his way to the wee cottage. Once there, he purchased the cockerel so that he might see what was so special about it. But when he returned to his ship, he found that his crew had too, for they were to set sail immediately on urgent business. A month later, the ship returned to Cromarty, and having thought of little else since leaving, the shipmaster hastily disembarked and made his way to the wee cottage. But when he arrived, there was no cottage, only a pile of blackened stones occupying the place where it had once stood. A local told him that the cottage had burnt down to the ground the very night he had set sail, and no one knew how or why it had happened. But the shipmaster knew, and feeling rather guilty for contributing to the destruction of this cottage, he paid for it to be fully rebuilt and refurbished for the owners to inhabit once more. Strangely, many years later, a human skeleton was found in the cottage's garden. The skull and bones of the feet were lying together, as though the body had been folded into the hole. So the circumstances around this cottage seem to be very strange indeed. Whoa, <laughs> that is a fascinating story. And it seems to be implying that the falling star is some sort of embodiment of evil, the spirit of that skeleton that was buried, that can somehow be repelled by the sound of cawing. Perhaps this is an attack upon the people who lived in the cottage from a malevolent force. Perhaps it wasn't the skeleton that was buried, but a local wizard who held a grudge against that family. Or maybe the devil himself. But it seems that whoever lived in the cottage didn't realise that they had attracted the ire of some powerful enemy, because otherwise they would not have sold the cockerel so easily to the shipmaster. I don't know, Annie. Who knows? Perhaps they were the malevolent force after all. And this could have been part of a plan. Because at the end of the story, they got a whole new house with all this lovely new furniture in it. So... Maybe they were the wizards and the whole thing was a ruse so that they could trick some wealthy fool into destroying their house and rebuilding it out of guilt. <laughs> You've been watching too much Game of Thrones, Jenny. Game of Cottages. <laughs> Three out of five falling stars there, Jenny. That's fair, that's fair. <laughs> Although Scotland is small, it is mighty when it comes to the space industry. Our location on the northwestern tip of Europe means that we are very well geographically positioned for launching satellites into polar orbits. And on top of this, the airspace up here is far less busy than, say, over London. And so having a clear northern sky with very little obstruction for a rocket's flight path is a big advantage. 
Because of this, there are few spaceports currently under construction in northern Scotland. One at Sutherland on the northern coast of the mainland and then one in Unst, the most northernly inhabited island of Shetland. These spaceports are nearing completion and will soon be able to launch small rockets into low orbit, which I think is the most exciting thing ever. While small rockets don't sound as impressive as big rockets, the demand for them is rapidly growing. You see, as technology improves, the traditional, big, expensive, multinational satellites that we're all sort of used to seeing are being replaced by much smaller satellites that are cheaper to make, cheaper to launch and cheaper to maintain. And so space is increasingly becoming more accessible for commercial users, civil governments, military governments, researchers and private individual users. And although it seems very distant, space has become a vital part of global infrastructure. Every time you send a text, use Google Maps, join a Zoom meeting, you're probably doing it via space through an increasing number of satellites. And oh, what do you know? Just so happens that Glasgow currently produces more small satellites than any other country in Europe. How handy. The satellite is the new ship, clearly, Jenny. (laughs) This is all part of the Scottish government working with the Scottish space sector to develop a strategy for Scotland in space. And they're really focusing on how to make Scotland an international space destination. Currently, there are over 170 space companies located in Scotland. And our universities are at the forefront of space research. Yes, this is what I find really, really cool. Like if I was a young person today, I would definitely be so interested in going to university here and studying some aspect of the future in space. Jenny, 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 can we get a Stories of Scotland satellite? Um, we're going to need to get a few more listeners first and then, <laughs> and then we'll get one. <laughs> but yes, Glasgow University's Institute for Gravitational Research is a great example of this. A few years ago, they helped to detect gravitational waves for the first time ever. Gravitational waves are ripples in space-time that are emitted by cataclysmic cosmic events like exploding stars or two black holes merging. Their existence was predicted by Einstein in 1916, but they were not directly observed until 2015. Researchers from Glasgow University headed a team that also included Strathclyde University too, to supply the precision-fused silica suspension technology which holds the LIGO inferometer's 40-kilogram mirrors in place. The LIGO inferometer detector is able to detect the tiny, tiny gravitational waves using lasers and mirrors. And that is just about all I understand about it. But (laughs) even if I don't understand it, it is super cool to see Scotland represented on such a hugely impressive team of global scientists. Jenny, I think you should go to uni and study space. You've, you're still young. You've still got time to do this. <laughs> I can't. Stories of Scotland just takes up too much of my time. <laughs> <laughs> if only we had a couple more patrons, Jenny could be an astronaut. That's what we're saying, really. <laughs> For the price of Tunnix tea cakes, you can launch Jenny into space. <laughs> But to top all of this off, Scotland recently got its first ever astronaut. David Mackay grew up in Helmsdale on the northeastern coast of the Highlands. He got a degree in aeronautical engineering and then joined the RAF before becoming a commercial pilot for Virgin Atlantic. And oh, what do you know, Annie? It's 2009 and the billionaire space race is on. Richard Branson, being a billionaire and enjoying races needs a chief testing pilot for his Virgin Galactic spaceship, and David is just the man. In 2019, Mackay piloted the VSS Unity VF-01 flight over 50 miles above Earth's surface, 
which is technically the boundary of space. With this, he became the 569th person to visit space and the first ever Scot. As he passed the 50 mile barrier, he said, welcome to space, Scotland. And when he landed back on the wonderfully solid surface, he was greeted by a piper and a stiff dram. So it seems Scotland's future in space is as bright as a falling star over the Cromarty Firth. That's very bright indeed, Annie. One last thing I want to highlight is that Neil Armstrong was exceptionally proud of his Scottish heritage. So really, Scotland has the 569th man in space, but also kind of half of the first man on the moon. (laughs) We'll share Neil with you, America. That's a deal. Yeah, thanks for doing the solid one with us, America. (laughs) We should go put a tiny little Scottish flag on the moon. But first, (laughs) you have to join our Patreon. (laughs) If you are in Scotland or visiting Scotland, do take some time to appreciate our connection to the stars. Galloway Forest Park is named as Scotland's Dark Sky Park, and we have several dark sky destinations. That's places with really low, almost non-existent levels of light pollution. And that means you can get a phenomenally clear view of the stars. I won't lie though, um, I have tried on multiple occasions to go to different dark sky parks, and every single time the sky has been graced with a thick blanket of clouds, so... If you are planning on visiting one, make sure you check your barometer and the forecast first. And be sure to take some snacks with you. Perhaps a Milky Way or Galaxy chocolate bar. Or why not a Mars bar? Oh, I I take everything that we've just said in this episode back, Annie. I don't think there's any greater Scottish contribution to space than a deep fried Mars bar. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, thank you all so much for listening to Stories of Scotland and learning about Scotland in space along with us. If you've been enjoying the show, you can help support us by following us on the social medias, giving us a share, and telling all of your family about us. You'll all have noticed that we now have adverts in our episodes. If you would like to listen to the episodes ad-free, whilst also getting access to loads more Scottish content, then you can join our Patreon. It's a wonderful way to support us as we make this show and we really appreciate everyone in our Patreon family. So an extra warm wintry welcome to our two newest members, Kimberly and Sheena. Thank you so much. Until next time, keep staring at the stars. Slanjava. Slanjava. <laughs>